the bare bones of economics is recognizing this issue with scarcity. Uh, everything is scarce, whether we realize it or not. But when it comes to labor, it's probably at the top of the list. Welcome to the Gas Compression Podcast. This is the only podcast out there for professionals working in the gas compression industry. Each week, we'll be bringing you interviews and discussions with some of the leaders in the industry to discuss the latest trends and what the future holds. If you're working in the gas compression industry and have always wanted to sit down with the leaders in our field to pick their brain, this show is your chance. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com. Well, Brian Green, thank you for being on the podcast. Brian is the COO at Tops, based in, or he's officing in Midland, and excited to have him on the Gas Compression Podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I appreciate the time and the invite, and I think it's a great for industry for you putting this together, and looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. Well, I like to start out with just asking how in the world you ended up at Tops and or in the gas compression industry. So where are you from? What were your first jobs like? So kind of start us off there. Yeah. So probably a lot of the people um, who grew up out in West Texas, I've kind of been surrounded by the oil field my entire life. My dad got started in the gas compression industry really early on with the CSI back in the early 80s. At yeah. that time, we were living in Kermit. I think they were, he was officing out of Piote. I can still remember taking some of those field trips over there and started seeing some of these machines. And, you know, it's continued on with uh, going out the field. My dad was kind of a, a jack of all trades, he mechanic, a little bit of engineering, and basically any type of production of surface equipment. He pretty quickly how to how to take care of it and optimize it. And so that's where he started his company. And that's where Tops got started. I think officially is incorporated around 1994. So your dad you know? started Tops? Yeah, he All started right. Tops. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, I guess around 2000, he had a, another mechanic that he's worked with for probably close to 40 years now, kind of came together and said, you know, we're doing a really good job keeping these machines up and running. Let's start our, our own rental fleet. And if we had five or 10 units, then that would keep us busy and give us a kind of a retirement nest egg and, and go from there with it. So that's how the rental fleet started for Tops was around that year 2000. It was just a few older, you know, two and three stage aerial gas driven compressors. And that's how it all got started. We moved over to Odessa. That's where I graduated from uh, high school. And I moved off to uh, go to college. And my mantra was always going to be, I was not going to live west of Abilene. That was the cutoff line, which that's uh, your famous last words. Fast forward a couple of years, uh, 2006, my dad's business, Tops, was growing. And he saw an opportunity. At the time, my daughter was just born. And we want to get, my wife and I want to get closer to family. So we took the, the opportunity to come back to West Texas. So we moved back to Midland in 2006. That's how I got started with official, I guess, with official role at Tops. And what was that official role when you came into the business? What were you doing? <laughs> That's a really good question. I could probably spit off about 30 different various titles. So it was a typical small business. You know, had to wear a lot of different hats. So sales and marketing and HR and 
accounting and finance and definitely a learning curve, you know, doing some application engineering and performance and sizing and finding equipment. So that's probably scratching the surface with a little bit of IT work in there as well. Where'd you go to school, Baylor? Yeah. What was your background? What'd you do there? Yeah, very proud Baylor graduate. I graduated with a major in economics and a minor in political science. I don't know if I would have done anything any differently. I think that background has prepared me for a lot that we have experienced only within the company, but just dealing with especially what we have for the past couple of years and really the past 18 months with COVID that really be able to see the great thing about economics. It kind of teaches you to look at the big picture and see trends and pick up on those and always focus in on the larger scale of things, I guess. Yeah. So you're much more of the business background more so than like the engineering background. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. It was a fair assessment. So it's been a, for the past, since 2006, it's been, you know, very much the learning curve and try to pick up as much as possible on the technical side, but no way, shape or form, you know, a, a formally trained engineer, but I've been able to pick up on a, a lot of things and introduce some of the concepts. And we've been surrounded by a really great team of experienced technicians and that, have, that certainly have helped me along as well. Okay, so top started, you said back in 2000, roughly? But it started in 94, and around 2000 when they officially started up a small rental fleet of gas compressors. Okay, so fast forward 17 years, where is TOPS today? What are you guys doing? What are you guys focusing on? How have you grown? What are you guys doing now? Right now, we're still strictly a Permian Basin company. So we have our main operation, our main headquarters is located between Midland and Odessa. So we're very proud to be West Texas based. You know, I think there's a very small group of compressor companies that are actually based in West Texas. We mm -hmm. take a lot of pride in that. But aside from this, we have our satellite office that's located in Carlsbad, and that's to help service our, our field technicians in that area. And then we have a make-ready facility located in Yukon, Oklahoma. So they're constantly you know, taking units on, getting them ready to deploy um, out here. But in terms of the size of our rental fleet, we're strictly in the Permian Basin. We're not in any other basins at this point in time. Uh -huh. So it's been a great place to be. You know, we've definitely cut our teeth in the most competitive market, I believe, in the world. <laughs> so we, I think we've proven our mettle over the past decade or so, being able to grow with, in such a competitive environment. But, uh, you know, our focus is very different and has been for a good while. We have a pretty singular focus, and that's been since 2011 to where we saw a lot of shortcomings within our industry. And we decided collectively to, to pursue, you know, a really state-of-the-art, cutting-edge, electric-driven gas compressor. And so that's been our push, which is, you know, very much against the grain for a lot of the industry. It has been for quite some time, but that's our focus. Over 92% of our rental fleet is electric-driven. feels up wow. to me it'd be 100%, but we're, we're trying to get there every day. Wow. So what other shortcomings? You said you noticed some shortcomings in the industry. Is it emissions based? What was it that made you say, hey, we're going all electric? Is it, I mean, e price, economic? What's the shortcomings were you seeing? Yeah, it was a multitude of factors. We got involved starting with the gas lift compression around 2008. And there's a lot of things that we began to see that it, you're just problems inherent with compression on these gas lift systems. We were seeing incredibly rich gas coming up that we're having to process. We were seeing just the harsh environmental conditions that this equipment is placed in. I mean, we're 
we're in the desert, but we see wild temperature swings. We have, we can see some very low temperatures in the winter. My favorite story is took my kids to Star Wars, one of the, the most recent movies that came out. I think when we went into the movie, it was around 75 degrees outside. They about two and a half hours. We walked outside and I think it was right a hair above freezing. <laughs> so within that two hour span, there was about a 40 degree temperature change. And that's just, that's West Texas in a nutshell for you. Yeah. But, you know, we started to see all these things and it was just causing, it was just wrecking havoc. We saw the same problems with our engine driven equipment over and over again. We were having issues with having to derate engines because of the rich gas. We'd have to derate engines because of the temperature. And we were seeing freeze up across the dump lines because we had no temperature control. So we finally said, you know, the technology in our industry is not where it needs to be. We're still seeing brand new compressors come out with manual gauges to where anyone can go up there and, and roll up a gauge just by turning a knob. There was no telemetry. There was no idea what was going on in the field without having to send an operator or one of our technicians out to troubleshoot. And it was just, you know, the, the whole litany of problems that just everyone experiences that our industry. So we decided to chart a different path. It's been a definite learning curve. And we're still, I was just talking with one of our senior guys just two days ago. I mean, we're still, you know, we're nine years into this and we're still learning things every day about how to get better and improve. It's a definite learning curve. Man, I love this story because I'm like you, I'm third generation of small family business and I love that it's always going to be your type of business that really makes a difference because you get up into the hundreds of thousands of employees and senior executives and dealing with Wall Street and all these, all these big, huge companies. You can't just pivot and say, you know what, we're going to change this. We're going all electric. We're doing this. We're doing that. And re really impact the industry like a small, nimble family-owned business who's making common sense decisions can do. So I love to hear that. What has been the biggest challenge? I mean, when you think about if you were to ask anybody, maybe not even familiar with our industry, would you rather have a, a gas-driven engine or an electric engine? Well, there's a lot less moving parts with electric. It seems cheaper. It's better for the environment. What problems are you guys running into when you're trying to go all electric? What are some of the biggest setbacks you guys are running into? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the largest things that we have seen, and, and this continues to be an issue, is you know, how, how good is the power grid? Because it's one of the benefits of being in West Texas. We have a very established oil field. I mean, my great-grandfather was a wildcatter back in the <laughs> 30s and 40s. And, you know, that's where, you know, a lot of these wells that have been on now for 100 years, almost, that infrastructure has been there. So it's really, you know, we benefit from that. But at the same time, where there's new growth, where there are areas where the acreage is not, you know, away from these more established fields, that's always the question, you know, is there power available for the compressor and is it reliable? You know, five or six years ago, that was a larger question. Now, you know, seemingly, if you take a look at the batteries that are being built today, mm -hmm. they really can't operate without power. There's so many automation features, pumps, transfer pumps, SCADA systems, down sub pumps, you know, take your pick, all this stuff requires power. Without it, it's really hard for a lot of these batteries to operate. So it's now, even if power is not available, companies you know, are investing into their own infrastructure. They're building their own microgrids to have it. And so it's just a natural extension. So, but that's, you know, getting back to your question, that's, that's one of the things that we see definitely challenges is just with the overall grid. I think there's always, especially 
questions, what are the fuel costs or what's the differential between, you know, if I have a compressor that has a natural gas engine running on fuel gas that's provided the location that can get really cheap versus having to buy power to power, you know, electric driven compressor. And so there's some economics involved there. Right. And then for whatever reason, there's a still significant number of people who, when they think of a gas compressor, they think of it as a compressor and it has a natural gas engine and that's what a compressor is. And so it's been a challenge to tackle that mentality a little bit. But those are just a few of the things that we've seen on our end of it. How close are we to having solar being able to be a legitimate source to power? I've got a buddy that sells pumps to, he sells pump systems to like landfills and other places. And I've been asking about horsepower and stuff like that. And they're not near, they're like self-sustaining solar pumps. And so there's some agricultural applications, but definitely not able to, you know, run a fourth row compressor. So how close do you know? I mean, is that even in the talks? Like, hey, we don't even need the grid anymore. We're developing a motor that will be able to be harness some solar stuff and actually compressor. Yeah, I think it's a great question. I little bit, I've really looked into solar has been more for residential side of things. But I think, you know, if you're looking at a lot of these companies where they're looking at diversifying or they're under pressure from shareholders to diversify. Right. I think it makes, especially out here where there's a lot of land available where it has a great sun exposure if they put in their own solar farms to power their fields. Mm -hmm. But to me, this is just, again, one of the things that I've always felt the innovation should be there, but it's not. I mean, you at night, you can still drive through any part of West Texas and you can see flares, just natural gas going up in flames all over the place. Yeah. And so these, you take a look at what an incredible waste. Like, there's got to be a better way, kind of like what we went through with our side with, with compression, but there's got to be a better way than just burning off natural gas. I mean, it seems to be, can you take all that gas and divert it to create your own power or run it through a generator to put power back onto the grid. Hmm. So I think there's still some of that buildup that needs to take place, a little bit more forward thinking. It's still, there's still areas where the sky is lit up at night around here. Oh yeah, I've been down there. It looks like a birthday cake. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good question. Instead of flaring that gas, why can't we capture it and run it through a generator? That's a great question that you need to develop. Yeah, I know that you know, it gets really complicated because you have power companies involved, you have operators involved, you have royalty owners involved. So there's a yeah. lot of different pieces to that. But right. you know, at some point, you would think all those parties can kind of get something aligned to figure this out. Hmm. So what are some of the biggest challenges facing this industry that you see? I think I would have answered that question much differently 18 months ago than I would now. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was talking with uh, someone the other day and we were telling them, you know, a lot of the, especially in things that they would teach in business classes about, you know, these really great ideas of like just-in-time inventory and all these really great concepts that are cutting edge. Um, you know, I think whomever came up with that concept they, they need to take all those textbooks and basically burn them. They never actually ran a business with real money. Is it? Yeah. You know, the assumption was, well, the supply chain will always be able to provide what we need. Yeah. 
pre-COVID, the supply chain challenges were not, yeah, absolutely. You could, you could run your business that way. But I think if the 18 months has taught us anything, it's we can no longer make those kinds of assumptions. We have to think a little bit more ahead and ask ourselves, okay, if this factory is not producing, or if we have a lot of workers who are on furlough, or if we can't unload ships on either one of our coastlines, how is that going to affect us? And so, you know, if we're looking at industry today, the supply chain is incredibly challenging. I mean, it, it, I spend a bulk of my time making sure orders are staying on for every component imaginable, compressor frames, motors, sensors, anything with metal, anything electronic related. It's, it's incredibly challenging. And I, I know it's not just us. It's everyone in our industry seeing this. At this point, I'm still not seeing any daylight on that. I don't know exactly when that's going to be turning around. So there's definitely supply chain issues. And again, that's more of a recent phenomenon. I think probably broader scale, which is probably what you're referencing. Our industry is, to be frank, is under attack. I think that the sins of the past with in terms of the environmental record for the oil and gas industry, which is, you know, no one really wants to talk about the excess capital that has been thrown in without much of a return. All those things are coming to play right now. So it's a very different environment than, say, 10 years ago. Uh, capital is not flush. It's very much a results-oriented if you do not show the results, if you do not have you know, the environmental record to back up what you're doing. It's going to be a really tough environment to grow. And I think it's going to be incredibly challenging for oil field service companies and for operators to overcome that. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. My first guest I did this show with was Norm Shade. And yeah, he's kind of on a mission to admit sins of the past is a great way to put that. Like not a good track record. We get it, but definitely trying to have a focus on emissions and kind of get in that, you know, kind of turn that ship around. But man, the language coming from mainstream news and political things, gosh, it, it has a big, big, big impact on the industry yeah. uh, as a whole. And so, yeah. It it's incredibly frustrating because I think overall our industry is so miscategorized and misrepresented yes. Yes. mainstream. I mean, I think if you were asked the average person about the oil and gas industry, I mean, it's like the Simpsons character that, that goes around <laughs> and shoot guns every place and just has all this money to burn. That's kind of what they envision for the oil and gas industry. And you're like, that. that's nowhere near reality. I think the truth is we have an incredibly skilled workforce. I mean, the things that some of our employees are able to do technically and understand. It's one of the most skilled workforces in the world. Uh, oh, yeah. Take place in the oil and gas industry. The things that we are able to accomplish, the wages are really strong. People can make a really good living. And to miss the way it's characterized, you would never get that impression. And some, again, some of that is our own fault for the way things have been operated in the past. But I think it's something that can be overcome. It's just going to take a lot of forward-thinking individuals getting the grander scale and, you know, a larger pool of people involved to see, you know, what, what our industry really is all about, what we're trying to accomplish, and that things can be done in an environmentally more friendly way, and that there are better ways to operate than what we have in the past. So let's go to something you talked about, which most people say is their biggest issue, and that's people. So do you have right now everybody you need employed to do what you're trying to set out to do this year, the next three, or is there be uh, a shortage of mechanics? And Yeah, absolutely not. And that kind of goes back to what we're talking about supply chain. So, 
you know, being a student of economics, you the bare bones of economics is recognizing this issue with scarcity. And mm-hmm. everything is scarce, whether we realize it or not. But when it comes to labor, it's probably at the top of the list right now. Really, it's been that way for the past four or five years mm-hmm. of finding the people who have the right backgrounds, who are have the right work ethic, who have the right attitude, who are willing to come in and learn. And it's incredibly challenging. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, I think it's you can spend multiple podcasts trying to figure out, you know, how did we get to this place where we have such a shortage of really able technical workers? But yeah, it, we're always on basically have permanent job postings for panel technicians, for compressor technicians, equipment washers. I mean, all of these things that, that it takes to run a, a successful rental fleet. I mean, we just constantly looking for good people to, to come to work. Yep. I for sure am in the same boat in the machine shop mechanic world. You can't take someone who's pretty decent at, you know, working on their car on the weekends and have them come in and start rebuilding screw compressors or a guy who likes to play around in a wood shop, come in and start metalizing and reconditioning cylinders. And so I think you and I have an advantage in that what I'm looking at doing is, I mean, there's a big focus of mine as the leader of our company on making Disco a really great and fun place to work, whether that's, you know, people kind of, you know, flexible schedules or, you know, the money thing is always going to be there and there's a market rate that people are making. And that's always kind of a fight back and forth, 5% here, 10% there, you know, people are going to give more money than that guy. And so they're going to leave and all that. You have all that. But at the end of it, what I'm focusing on in our business is, because we are a smaller business and we can do what we want, we're trying to do things and you know have make the work environment a lot of fun and attract people that way. Because, yeah, that's for sure our biggest challenge is, is finding people to come in and wanting to do this type of work. So yeah, absolutely. There's really no other. It's hard to to categorize our business any other way, but it is a grunt business. We have 24 hour call you know, technicians going out, you know, middle of night, units back up and running, you know, it's a very labor intensive position. And we try as hard as we can to have that work-life balance where, you know, we want our guys to have some time off. We want them to be able to take a vacation. Well, again, another black eye that we consistently see in our industry. I mean, you have you know, technicians who consistently work 90 to 100 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sure, it's a stable in a short time, but it's not safe to begin with to operate that way. At some point, these guys will get burnt out and then they just leave the industry. They don't come back. And then you throw on top, you know, the constant boom and bust cycles. And, you know, it, it's easy to see when an entire generation of individuals are, you know, are not in the oil and gas industry because of all these reasons. I think right now you'll see it. There's, for my dad's generation, the ones that are still in, they're on the verge of retirement. And then you see this really large gap. I think we're sent in similar age, ages to each other, but we're kind of an anomaly. There's not that many individuals in their 40s right now in the oil and gas industry because that was kind of a skip generation. And then you start, there's starting to be the 20-somethings and 30-somethings, there's more of them. But there's definitely some generation gaps because the boom and bust cycles. Because, you know, when I remember I graduated from high school in, in 97 from uh, Odessa Permian, there was no one 
in my age group who talked about coming back or wanting to become an engineer or be involved in the gas industry because it was seen as, you know, a relic of the past. Yeah. All that's kind of a product of where we are today with the labor force. That's a really good point. Yeah, I'm 38. So that is true. There's just not a whole lot of 38 to 50 year olds. It's either they're brand new or they're retiring. Yeah, we're about to be the old men of the industry. (laughs) Do you see, I mean, other than I'm asking for on behalf of myself and everyone else in our position, I mean, other than just having a permanent Indeed or, you know, application out there, anything else we can do to attract and promote talent? I'll probably be asking you that question if you have any ideas. Yeah, I think you just have to scour. I know we haven't done it as much, but we, you know, talked about having, you know, these big hiring events at a, at a restaurant or, you know, these meet and greets. I think pulling from our armed forces is a great place to find really hardworking technical people who would, who could step right in into our industry. I think, so I think it's important to, uh, Look at those websites or looking for people who have served our country. But yeah, I mean, beyond that, I don't think there's a silver bullet. How do you feel about the local community colleges? And be honest, how do you think you can go and just someone comes and knocks on your door and says, hey, look, I got my certificate from Odessa, you know, community college. It says I'm a mechanic. I'm a compressor mechanic. I like spread work. How would you react to that? Yeah, I think the local community college is such a great asset for us. You know, for my daughter is 16 and she'll have, oh gosh, I think right now close to 30 hours that, of college credit she's already built up going through Odessa College. And so those programs are great. And I think, especially on the technical side, it's certainly a path to go forward. But even with, you know, that those individuals are set in such high demand. Because it's only, you know, oil and gas, you have, if you go by Sewell Ford, one of the, you know, the major car companies, they are looking for technicians. Oil and gas is looking for technicians. Anything technical related, there's AC uh, contractors, there's plumbing folks. All these people are looking for that same pool of individuals. And there's just simply not enough of them to fill up all the demand for these individuals. So it's a, you know, great place for those recent graduates to be in. but. And for us, you know, we would have to take those individuals and then start training them on the grass, gas compression side, put them in our shop on a training program. It's, it's still very much a learning curve, but it is another avenue. So what do you see coming down the road next five, 10 years? I mean, you said you're at 92% electric fleet. You want to get that last 8%. Is that kind of what you see is like you're looking down the road saying this is where we're headed? This is the opportunity in the next five, 10 years in the gas industry. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I don't know how it's going to play out any different. You know, if you look, it's not just, I think the easy thing to do is just point at the regulation side and say, yeah, the, you know, the state or the federal government is mandating all these things. And so we're, we're, you know, we have to comply. That's certainly an element. If you were in New Mexico, you know, it's a much different regulatory environment than it is in Texas. And that's precipitating a lot of the change. At the same time, just from an automation standpoint, from a man hour standpoint, what we're able to accomplish through our control room, just being able to monitor everything on these units in real time, it makes all the sense of the world that, you know, everything in our industry is going to have to embrace automation as much as possible. It's a natural extension of what we're currently doing. I think that's going to be the biggest driver more, even more so than, than the regulation side. Who can operate the most efficiently? while 
being good stewards, not only of their people, but of their environment and taking you know good care of their equipment. I meant to ask you about this earlier. You said something about New Mexico. You guys are office in Carlsbad and, and doing stuff out there. Is there some kind of moratorium on drilling that this current administration has put out? What's on federal lands? Does that affect you guys at all? No, I think so. There was a moratorium on new permits beyond what was already extended. And I haven't closely as I was, I believe that has already expired, which where they are allowing. But again, I, I could get my facts wrong on that. You know, the, there are a few of our customers that were going to be involved with that, but they still had enough permits and enough acreage to last them for another at least five to six years. So they were not overly concerned about it. I mean, again, it's another overreach into our industry. So, you know, it's kind of that snowball effect. And the political science classes, you know, there's always a, a joke about, you know, deadwood laws or once a government program starts, it really never goes away. It just continues to build. I think that's once you have that intrusion, then it just kind of builds from there is kind of the trend. It's unfortunate, but, you know, it's something always to be mindful of going forward. Well, that kind of wraps up our time. I'm excited to see what you guys do, because if you put a small family-owned business in an industry like this, they're always going to be faster and adapt quicker, be able to pivot and do a lot more than a big, huge business. And we're a vendor of yours and we loved working with you guys. And so excited to see what you guys are up to in the next five to 10 years. So where can people find more about Tops? Thanks again for the time and the work you guys do for us. Yeah, to find out more about us, we have an active social media presence. So we have uh, you know, some of our salespeople are really involved on LinkedIn. So you'll see all sorts of interesting pictures. And uh, Kevin is one of our sales individuals in Houston. He has a, he's a very large family. So he's always posting some funny uh, things going on there. But so I've LinkedIn, noticed that. The, I've, yeah. Y'all's yeah, link LinkedIn page is really good. I, I yeah, a lot uh, of followers. Just search, search for Tops on LinkedIn, or you can find us on our website. We just did a revamp on our website. We have some really great information about what we're trying to accomplish, some really strong environmental metrics that are going to be incredibly eye-opening, not only from operationally, from runtime perspective, but what we are being able to accomplish for every unit that we set. It's making a significant impact and significant environmental impact that we're incredibly proud of, but go to... Uh, total-operations.com and check us out. Awesome. Well, from one small business to another, way to go, man. Keep up the good work and look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks again for the time and I look forward to having another conversation in the future. Yeah, thanks, Brian. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gas Compression Podcast. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at gascompressionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is sponsored by Gas Compression Magazine. Published monthly, Gas Compression Magazine provides in-depth coverage of the products, systems, technologies, and news that affect the global gas compression industry. Available in print and digital delivery, subscribe for free at www.gascompressionmagazine.com.